Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Adam, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm excited. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series today, but before we get to that, um, Abby just mentioned we've got baptism in a few weeks. We also have a summer block party happening in just a few weeks, and that is a lot of color. Okay, so summer block party, and I don't know if y'all have noticed what's up on here, but I've seen it, and I'm going to point this out. It literally says live fire juggling. Come on, right? Come on, right? So sign your kids up after the service. We'll let, I'm just kidding. That's not how that works, okay? Not how that works. That's not how that works. You don't have to sign a waiver to attend this event. It's gonna be awesome. Bring your swimsuit, lawn chair. We're gonna have a great time um, just hanging out, getting to know one another. So make sure, I know you might be traveling over the next few weeks. You've got that on your calendar so we can come together as a church family in just a few weeks and celebrate and enjoy spending some time together. Well, we are kicking off a new series. It's called In the Light. We're gonna be in the book of 1 John and we're gonna be in the, first, the book of 1 John for the entire summer. And we're just gonna pick up a one week where we leave off from the previous. So let me just go ahead and challenge you up top to see this series through. So hopefully if you're in town, you can join us on campus each Sunday. If you're traveling and many of you already joining us online, we're so grateful for that. You can join us online. And we're gonna look in this book. We're gonna see what it says. But more importantly, we're gonna see how we can apply it into our everyday lives. And before I jump into the passage for today, let me give you a little bit of background, okay? You might be taking some notes today. You might wanna jot down a few of these things. You don't have to know the background of a book before you start studying, but maybe a little bit of a knowledge helps with the context, maybe some of the things that John is speaking to. So this particular letter was written towards the end of the first century. It's written by John, the same author who penned the Gospel of John. We just came out of the I Am series. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John penned those words in his Gospel. John will circle back to this concept of light over and over in this letter that we're gonna study. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because it is the same author. The audience for this letter is interesting. It's the second generation of Christians. Again, we're at the end of the first century. We're about 60 to 70 years post-resurrection, and there's a generation of adults who are claiming the name of Jesus, but they're not necessarily signing up for everything that that means. Let me see if I can explain. They're saying things like, we believe Jesus was a good teacher, but we're not so sure he was the son of God. They're saying things like, we should probably align ourselves with Jesus, but we don't really think that he rose from the grave. I mean, nobody is dead and then they are alive again. They were saying things like, sin isn't really sin. We kind of get to all make our own decisions about right and wrong. And then they were kind of casting dispersion on those who might say, yeah, but there really is right and wrong and there really is sin. And ultimately, we don't get to be the ones who make that call. Now, if any of these circumstances sound familiar to you, they should. A lot of the same challenges that existed at the end of the first century that John is speaking into are some of the same challenges that we see in our culture at large today. And John's gonna write this letter. But letter is not really the right word for it because he doesn't start with a greeting and then kind of tell you some things and then end with a conclusion like a lot of books in the New Testament do. Rather, he just kind of starts writing. And he's just tossing out some truth bombs left and right and, and, and they're not always in a coherent line of thought. And the reason why is because he's just answering some of these false teachings. And so as we go through the passage today, it's gonna feel like it's a little all over the place. As we look at the applications, you're going to notice that they don't necessarily build upon one another. And that's intentional because in this particular passage, we're gonna hit a number of different places. So we are gonna start at the beginning 
We have entitled today's message, uh, Walking in the Light, because we do see that phrase over and over. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn there, you can. If you don't, we're gonna read all the verses. I've broken down this passage into five smaller passages, and each smaller passage is going to have a corresponding application so we can put God's word to practice in our life. Let's go. We got a lot to cover. Here we go, verse one. That which was from the beginning, John says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That phrase, word of life, is Jesus. John liked to use the word, word, to describe Jesus. The beginning of his gospel does this. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, and the word was with God. And that word, word, means Jesus. And it's interesting what John is trying to say. He's saying, so Jesus has been around from the beginning, but we saw him with our eyes. We were with him. So John is saying, I I can speak into this. Myself, my contemporaries, we walked with Jesus. So I'm writing to you who've never seen Jesus. I was actually with Jesus and, and, and we lived with Jesus. So therefore, John has an authority to speak to these things that perhaps his audience doesn't possess. He continues in verse two, that life appeared. We've seen it and we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Interesting. He says it appeared. He says Jesus was eternal. John's trying to help them see. Jesus didn't just show up at the first Christmas, Mary, Joseph, and Bethlehem. He's always existed. And that matters because unless Jesus is eternal, he can't offer eternal life. And what John wants everyone to see is he then appeared. So he stepped out of heaven and he stepped down to us. And here's what John is just trying to establish a foundation of. I knew Jesus. That's all John's trying to say. Before you kind of let some beliefs take you down a path that Jesus never intended, let me make sure we establish this foundation that I actually knew who Jesus was. And what I'm about to tell you about Jesus in the rest of this letter is actually true. You say, well, what does that mean for us today? Well, here's the application I think we should jot down and take to heart. Be careful who you listen to concerning your faith. That's what John wants them to see. John's like, you got all these people, they never knew Jesus. They're telling you things about Jesus. Why are you listening to them? See, the principle there is unless somebody knew Jesus, you probably don't need to take what they're saying very seriously. Now, this is unique to the New Testament. So there's another book in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. If you're new to the Bible, a guy named Paul wrote it to a church in a town called Corinth. And he wrote this letter about 50 years prior to the letter we're reading today. Why does that matter? Because in chapter 15 of that letter, Paul says something really interesting. He says, so if the resurrection didn't happen, we're a bunch of fools. And if you don't really think the resurrection happened, I'm kind of summarizing here for y'all, give me a little bit of grace, okay? He says, if you don't think the resurrection really happened, there's about 500 people walking around that you can go ask. They saw him. It's literally in there, 1 Corinthians 15. And they, you know, reached out to them on Facebook. They made a new friend and they said, hey, Tell me about this Jesus you saw, that they could do that. But see, now we're about 60 years later and and that's not the case anymore. John's one of the few people left who can actually say, I saw Jesus. And church, before you let somebody shape your faith, here's the principle. Make sure they know Jesus. Don't let some so-called expert with a YouTube channel rock your faith, okay? Come on. 
Don't let some skeptical professor at a university rock your faith. You don't know anything about them. Before you let someone speak into your faith, know if they walk with Jesus. And if they do, then let that person help shape your faith. This was a challenge for people, believers in the first century. It can be a challenge for us in the 21st century as well. Let's jump back into our passage, verse three. John says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Interesting. John's trying to change their beliefs. They believe one thing. They believe that Jesus wasn't God's son. They believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Ultimately, John wants to take them from that false belief to a true belief. But that's not what he says in this verse. He doesn't say we're proclaiming this to you so that you will believe like us. He says we're proclaiming this to you so you will have fellowship with us. That's interesting. And then he continues. Our fellowship then is with both the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And when we write this to you, it makes our joy complete. What's the application for us? The goal of proclamation is connecting others. So when we proclaim the good news of the gospel message to people who don't believe like us, initially our goal isn't to get them to believe like us. Our goal is to actually connect them to us. And it can be challenging to try to connect people to us who don't act like us, talk like us, behave like us, or believe like us. Can I tell you what the word is for that in the New Testament? Normal. That's what we've been called to. But sometimes we forget that. And sometimes churches can forget that. I shared this last week. I grew up in church. I love church, big fan of church, not taking a shot at church. But I've seen this over the years at some different churches. I don't even have a particular church in mind. On their website or different promotional materials, it'll say something like, believe, belong, become. We want you to believe in Jesus Christ. We want you to belong to us as a fellowship so that you can become everything God wants you to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with the words. It's just the order of the words that's wrong. See, according to this passage and many others in the New Testament, the correct order of those words are belong, become, and believe. See, we want you to belong to us before you ever believe like us. We're not gonna ask you to see the world the way we see the world before we will accept you. I might be wrong, but there was an old hymn that said, just as I am. Did I miss that? <laughs> it didn't say just as we prefer you to be. See, Jesus accepts us just the way we are. Study his ministry in the gospels. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad Jesus accepted me just the way I was when he saved me. And church, what we've been called to do to a people who desperately need salvation is to help them see you belong to us. We'll accept you just the way you are. We'll love you just the way you are. We will not ask you to make any changes in order for that to happen. And we do believe you can become everything God created you to be by experiencing salvation in and through his son, Jesus Christ. See, the only way you know God is by knowing his son. And, and, and it's interesting how Jesus does this. Over a lifetime of discipleship, does he not shift and change our beliefs? Isn't that the process of discipleship where he takes our thoughts and he takes our motivation and he takes our heart and he begins to conform them more into his image? It's a lifetime process to believe what God's word says to be true, not just through mental assent, but by how we live our lives. But what we've been called to do is proclaim the good news of the gospel message so that we can actually connect those who are different from us 
to us, and in doing so, point them to Jesus Christ. Let's jump back to the passage, verse five. Y'all good? We all right? We're rolling along? Okay, just making sure. Verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So that's kind of our first little appearance there of this whole light concept that we're gonna come back to over and over. But look at this. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie, we don't live out the truth. So this word walk means the normative process of our life. It doesn't mean a temporary lapse in judgment. It doesn't mean that when you sin, every time you sin, you need to question the validity of your salvation. That's not what this passage is saying. But what it is saying is if you walk in darkness. If you can habitually continue to sin without any conviction and or remorse. If you can continue to walk in sin not concerned at all about the devastating effect and consequences that might be bringing into someone else's life. If you can do those things and not experience remorse or conviction, you probably never got saved to begin with. You might've walked an aisle. You might've signed a card. You might've burned a few old CDs. That was just me, okay? Baptist camp in the South, right? Okay, so. But you may not have been rescued, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, okay? So we just have to let that challenge us a little bit. But let's keep going because that's not really the application I wanted to give you. I just thought I'd throw that in for fun, okay? So let's go back in, verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, don't miss this, we have fellowship with one another. Interesting. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Did you see it, church? The way he connects walking the light and fellowship with others. So here's the application for us. I think it's the most important application in this message today. I need to recognize that my relationship with God is observed by my fellowship with other believers. This is gonna sound like I'm trying to just make a point. I'm not just trying to make a point because what we have experienced in this room all day has been phenomenal. Our worship team has led us to the throne. There's something about worshiping with God's people. I mean, sometimes you just need to borrow somebody else's worship. I mean, sometimes you've just been through a bad week and you can't find something to rejoice and the person beside you is rejoicing and you're just like, I'm gonna lean on you for a minute, okay? That's what happens when we come together and it's powerful and God speaks to me when we worship him. I don't don't know how that works for you, but that's how God speaks to me is when I worship with his people. But listen, Our relationship with God is not just evaluated by how we worship him with one another. Our relationship with God is not just measured by what we're getting out of our quiet time. Our relationship with God is not just evaluated through the intensity of our prayer life. Church, don't miss this. Our relationship with God is observed by how well we do fellowship with each other. And we separate them. The New Testament does not. So let's just get real for a second, okay? Husbands, don't tell me about your vibrant walk with the Lord when you're mistreating your wife. Wives, let me step on your toes. (laughs) Like week two, he's already doing this on week two. I know, right? Why not? Here we go. Wives, I'm so glad you go to that women's Bible study. How are you respecting your husband? Hey, students, 
Glad we have a thriving student ministry. I don't wanna hear about it if you're continuing to disobey your parents, okay? You can go to an amazing group, but if you gossip about everybody after you leave the group, you've missed the point, okay? It is how we fellowship with one another that is how our relationship with God is observed. So what are you supposed to do? And I'm not talking, let me be clear, I'm not talking about like straight up abuse. I'm just talking about good old fashioned conflict where two people just cannot see eye to eye, brothers and sisters in Christ, not in the same place. It's created a rift in the relationship. What are you supposed to do if you're in that place? And, and, and you're in that place because of the other person. Can I get an amen? Okay, right? <laughs> It's like, what am I supposed to do? They're the problem. Okay, so I had to learn this years ago. So let me see if I can share something I learned in our marriage. Yes, I'm gonna talk about our marriage and, um, and maybe it'll kind of help. So my wife, Morgan, and I, we have been happily married for 17 years. Is that right? Happily married 17 years, okay? Yep, yep. See, they did it again. It worked again. I kind of set y'all up. See, we've been married for 20 years, okay? But um, <laughs> only happily married for 17 of those because the first three years... Not good, okay? And what was confusing is all of the things that we had been told in our premarital counseling that would make our marriage bad, like those things weren't happening. Like no one was stealing money, um, I think. No, we're good, okay? No one was stealing money. Like there's no infidelity. We just couldn't get along. We, we just argued all the time. And in hindsight, it's so clear to see now, we were both incredibly self-absorbed, selfish, not putting the other one first, and we had terrible conflict management skills. Is that about cover it? Yes, okay, so <laughs> let me tell you what I had to learn in that season. So when we would get into an argument, and if you get into an argument with your spouse, heaven forbid if you get into a fight with your spouse, here's all you have to do from this point forward. I'm gonna free you up, it's gonna be awesome. If you wanna really sound spiritual, all you have to say is we had a lot of intense fellowship. That's all you have to say, okay? People are like, it's so spiritual. So like, that's all you have to say, all right? So we had a lot of intense fellowship and sometimes after that intense fellowship, I would find myself in another room of the house, away from her. And I would fervently seek the Lord and I would pray this prayer and I would say, God, Please convict that woman. I would pray that prayer. Just get a hold of her heart. Holy Spirit reign. And, um, and can I tell you, God never answered that prayer. Because that's not a good prayer to pray. So eventually, I'm a slow learner, but eventually I would realize maybe I need to pray a different prayer. So when I would pray, hey God, convict me of what I did wrong. It was like answers flowed from heaven, right? Such a clear communication line with God. He was very open to show me all the things I did. And here's what I learned in those, in those three years, okay? So let's just say there's conflict, and let's just say 50-50. We're gonna, you know, we both contributed to this conflict. Instead of sitting in another room and asking God to show her what her 50% is, how about I own my 50%? Walk into the other room and own, this is what the Lord was telling me, what you contributed to this and confess that and ask for forgiveness. And what I'll tell you is we don't always get that right, but we're a lot further along than we used to be because what we recognize is that when there's conflict, there's a way that you can handle that conflict that actually strengthens your marriage. But you gotta own your stuff, okay? Some of y'all are in conflict with another brother and sister in Christ and all you're doing is focusing on what he or she contributed to it. Hey, I've been there. Guilty as charged, not coming down on you, but can I tell you, you're missing out on what it means to be a part of a church family. And maybe instead of focusing on what the other person did, 
Maybe you could own what you did. Hey, it might only be 5%. It might only be 1%. But does the relationship matter? And see, if the relationship matters, you can own what you've contributed to that conflict for the good of the relationship and for the good of your relationship with the Lord. That's what John wants to see from this passage. Let's keep going, verse eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so I mentioned that earlier, kind of in the background, that there was this belief that that sin was really up to the person to define and it's kind of heavy handed to talk about sin. And so John wants to address this, but you might've noticed in the passage I read, there was a verse that is a good verse to memorize. It might even be a verse that you've been taught over the years. And so let's circle back around to it. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you haven't memorized that verse, might I challenge you to do so. It's such a powerful verse. See, I don't know what your plans are for the rest of today, but can I tell you one thing I know all of us will do at some point today? Sin. We will, okay? All of, don't point, that was rude. Okay, don't do that, all right? <laughs> but we will all sin. So when you sin, you've got some choices to make here. And what this verse is saying is that when you sin, confess it. The word confess just means to agree. God, I agree that was sin. I wanna claim your forgiveness. But so many times, church, we have convinced ourselves, and this is a tactic the enemy uses in all of our lives, that when we sin, God wants to beat us up. He's out to get you. He's after you. You've broken your relationship with God. Can I share some good news with you today? Some of y'all need to take this to heart, okay? When you sin, God does not beat you up over your sin because he chose to beat up his son for your sin on the cross, okay? When Jesus hung on that cross, he literally became sin. Someone says, why, why such a gruesome death? I understand Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Why such a gruesome death? Because he became sin. Sin's never pretty. And in that moment, as he was being beaten for your sin, he said, it's finished. There is no contribution or payment you have to make. The account's been settled. So when you sin, that no longer creates a barrier between you and God. Just own it and confess it. But see, the basis of this verse is actually the verse before it, where he's trying to go after this notion that we could somehow be without sin. Verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what does it mean for someone to actually believe that they're not going to sin? Well, we're not, we're a lot more sophisticated now. So we wouldn't be as blatant as to say, I don't think I sin, but we kind of have our own little tactics today. So let me give you the principle I think we should apply from this particular part of the passage. Be honest about my struggles instead of trying to cover them up, okay? Just be honest. That's what John's saying. It's like, come on, you're deceiving yourself. We all have struggles. We all have things that we... We do, we all have sin that we wish we could leave behind. And the reason why this is so difficult for us, church, is, and Christians, we're, we're, we're the worst at this, um, we all have different strategies for sin management instead of just owning it. So for some of us, we do what they were doing in the first century. We just change our beliefs. 
So we find that our behaviors don't align with the beliefs of God's word. And so rather than change our behaviors to align with God's word, we just change what God's word means, change our beliefs. Like, it doesn't really mean that. So we don't have to change our behaviors. It's the oldest trick in the book. The problem is it's wrong, okay? Another tactic for sin management is comparison. So we don't act like we don't have sin or struggles, but it goes something like this. Yeah, I got, I got my stuff going on, but if you knew what was going on down the road with that couple, holy cow, right? So it's like, I'm not that bad. So compared to them, I'm good. And then probably the favorite of people who come to church is to just kind of cover it up. Just kind of push it down, act like everything's okay, smile on the face, isn't the Lord good brother while you're dying on the inside? Hey, church, one of the things we have to get on the same page about, one of the things I love about this church family, one of the things that drew me to this church family, and one of the things that we're gonna make sure we keep at the forefront of this church family, is it's okay to not be okay. You don't have to act like everything's going great when it's not. Like if somebody asks you in the lobby after the service, how's it going, and you say terrible, that is perfectly acceptable here. We won't judge you or question your faith. And our student ministry want our teenagers to know, hey, it's okay to not be okay. It's a safe place. You can talk about the real things. Hey, in our, in our kids' ministry, kids are going through more difficult things at much earlier ages than any of us ever were. Why would they ever just go through the motions and do church on a Sunday? What are we talking about? No, talk about the real things. What's going on in here? Hey, if you go to a group and you go through the motions, but you never get to what's really going on. But that requires us to be honest. That requires us to be humble. See, it's okay to not be okay, but can I tell you what happens when that's in the water, when that's in the culture with a church? We actually begin to see how we can help one another move from that. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. See, David said we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't say we stop and camp out. We keep moving. But sometimes we need one another to keep moving. Hey, parents, can I challenge you with this? Every parent would love for their kids or teenagers to talk to them about what's really going on at a soul level. Can I tell you how to accomplish that in your home? You go first. You want your teenagers to open up with you about what they struggle with? You tell them about what you struggle with. They'll listen. <laughs> They'll pay attention. Hey, grandparents, immense influence. You want your grandkids to tell you about the real things? You tell them about the real things. See, we can either cover things up or let them rise to the surface and in doing so, claim the truth that they are covered by the blood of the Lamb. See, we don't have to put forth the effort to cover up our struggles or our sins because they've already been covered by Jesus when he shed his blood on the cross, when he allowed his body to be broken for us on the cross. And so church, we're gonna receive communion together because the word that's used in the New Testament for communion is remember. So as we sit in this passage of recognizing we don't have to cover up our sins because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we remember his broken body.
And remember that no one sent Jesus to the cross. He willingly went there for us. Would you receive the bread with me? And when Jesus shed his blood, it covered all our sin. Your sin's not gonna keep you out of right relationship with God. That price has been paid. So rather than covering it, we simply confess it because of the blood of the lamb. And as we partake of the cup, we remember that. John's gonna conclude our passage today by saying this. My dear children, that's a term of endearment. Remember, he's writing to the next generation. I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't like anyone else. He's literally our advocate. He goes before us with God the Father. He is the righteous one. And I love what John says here. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Who better to make this claim? John was there. We know from the gospel accounts, John was the only disciple who did not flee on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. We see from the gospel accounts that John was literally there with Mary, that from the cross, Jesus looked to John and asked him to take care of his mother, Mary. Who better to say he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin? John could say, I felt the earthquake that day as he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I know the price he paid. I saw it with my own eyes. But look at how he ends this, incredible. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's the application for us, church. Remember that Jesus didn't just die for me. He didn't just die for you either. John says he died for the sins of the world. And of course, this is what John would say. John's the guy who gave us John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Not just the elect few. Not just the academics. Not just the elite. Not just those with family pedigree. No, no, God loved the world. That he willingly gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, you're not gonna perish, but you're gonna have eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, friends, Jesus went to the cross for the sins of of the world. And if God never did anything for you again, he's worthy of your worship. For sacrificing his son so you could be reconciled to him. But hey, here's the thing. So many times as Christ followers, we're sideways with each other out of fellowship. We're hung up on our own junk and all the effort it takes to cover it up that we can't even see that there's people all around us who don't know Jesus, who he went to the cross for as well. See, part of getting right with one another, part of confessing those sins is we actually begin to see people the way Jesus sees people. And here's what I want you to see. He has placed you strategically around some people. They don't act like you, look like you, believe like you, behave like you. You know what that's called? God's purpose for your life. If he hasn't called you home yet, he has you here to point others to him. But if you're caught up in your own stuff, you're gonna miss him. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Some of you are covering up a lot 
instead of confessing it in freedom. Some of you are out of fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ. I'll confess my stuff. Sometimes I get so enraptured and caught up and expressive and grateful and appreciative of everything that God's done for me. I can forget to look out and see others that he wants to do the same for them as well. See, part of our worship of God is he does turn our eyes back out towards others who Jesus died on the cross for. So as we go into this time of response, we're gonna call on God to do business like God can only do with his children. You may sense the Holy Spirit telling you to stop singing and go to that brother or sister in Christ in this room and get that relationship right. You may sense the Holy Spirit leading you to come down front and drop to your knees in a prayer of freedom and confession and to leave that sin behind. And so God, as we come to you right now, we ask for you to do what only you can do, to fill this place with your presence, to speak to your people as your children and move in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, the name, the only name that saves, amen.